This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Hello and welcome. My name is Charlotte Hill. I'm a PhD student here at UC Berkeley, and I'm here with Professor of Public Policy and Political Science Sarah Anzia and the former governor of Michigan, Jennifer Granholm, who's also a professor here at UC Berkeley. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Great Thank you for having here. us. Yeah. So 2018 was an incredible year for women at the ballot box. Woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> we saw an unprecedented number of women getting elected to the U.S. Congress. And it seems like there's something different this year compared to past elections. But it's not totally clear Uh, from an outsider's perspective, what it is that is different. Is it just that more women were running? Is it that women were running campaigns that were qualitatively different from campaigns that had been run in the past? Uh, Could either of you shed some light on that? Maybe Sarah. Sure. Well, I think the the really big story was the record numbers of women running for particularly U.S. House and specifically Democratic women. Um, I think Prior to this year, the record for uh, Democratic women running for office, uh, running for U.S. House, was something like 190 back in 2012. And this past election, it was over 350 filed to become candidates. So it's a huge jump from from the record. And... Then on top of that, they did really well. Um, women won their prime. Democratic women won their primaries at higher rates than any other group. And so what you had was a record number of Democratic nominees who were women, 43 percent or something like that. Um, and I guess the other notable thing is this did not happen on the Republican side. That that the numbers of Republican women running for House were pretty much they looked like they had before. Um, so this was definitely uh, a, you know just an amazing year for Democratic women in particular running for office. I, I, you know, there's an, another um, piece of information which I think is such a great anecdote about the enthusiasm on the part of women to run, because normally, uh, you know, prior to this year, we used to really have to persuade women to run. You know, you had to ask them five times, et cetera. Emily's List, who, of course, helps pro-choice Democratic women, this uh, past cycle. So they, in a normal cycle, in the cycle before this past one, they had about 900 women that they, that who had raised their hand and, and had approached them and said, I want to run. In this cycle, so 900 last time, in this cycle, 42,000 women. Yeah. Does that give you goosebumps or what? Yeah. I mean, so there is something qualitatively different about what has happened between the last cycle and this one. And it has caused more women voters to step up, and it's caused more women to run for office. So the question is, what what is it? And obviously, we got a big answer in the White House because it is largely Democratic women, right? People are angry and feel empowered to take our nation back, feel like perhaps they have a responsibility to do that. And so that Women's March and the millions of women who participated and 600 marches across the country, all of that sort of was the initial fuel and then after that, women felt like, heck yes, this is my country. I'm not just going to sit back and allow others to make decisions for me. I'm going to take, I'm going to take a, a participatory role. So that was super exciting. I think a really important catalyst in addition to probably some other things that you probably yeah. have ideas on. Well, I mean, this is just anecdotal, but there were a number of accounts of primary campaign ads also that looked different uh, than mm-hmm. they had in the past. You had uh, women 
running as women uh, rather than following yes. sort of the old yes. playbook. So campaign ads, you know, with w- showing women breastfeeding, right, or talking about sexual assault or, you know, the people bringing their kids along, right? So that seemed, again, this is purely anecdotal, but seemed like a shift okay, this wait. time around. So <laughs> in Michigan, this is just one classic example. The woman who ran for attorney general of Michigan, her name is Dana Nessel, she had a minute-long introductory ad, and this is what her ad was basically. Vote, and I, this is not censored, vote for the one without the penis, not kidding you. That was her ad. And she won, like, wow. significantly. Yeah. So, yeah. so, but that, it, she ran as a woman. Obviously, you have to run as a woman if you are a yeah. woman. But your point about in previous times, yeah, you were told, I was told, don't even show your children because people don't want to be thinking about whether you will be capable of being in office. But this time, totally authentic ads that had women showing who they were, women fighter pilots, women who are, you know, with their families, et cetera. It was just, it was so refreshing and authentic. And that, I think, is the gift that this past cycle has given to us, is this notion that you can be imperfect and use some, not that women, being a woman is imperfect, but you can use some of your challenges mm-hmm. as a way to, to have people relate to you. Uh, you know, obviously being a woman, but like I think of Stacey Abrams, who ran for governor of Georgia, she had some issues with some um, finances in the past, some loans, et cetera. And she used that as a way to say, I am not the only one. You know, I'm somebody who went to Yale, et cetera, and I'm having problems. So what, do you, what is their average citizen having? So all of, all of that is to say that authentic challenge and struggle and laying it out there is, I think, a real difference. So why do we think this matters to have women versus men holding office. Clearly it matters for descriptive representation for young women to grow up seeing people who look like them in office. Are there other ways uh, that women legislators govern differently or legislate differently? Didn't you do some research on that? Yeah, (laughs) well, and I think it can easily be misrepresented because, so I have um, an article I published a while back with Chris Berry at University of Chicago where um, we show evidence that in Congress, um, the female legislators appear to outperform the, the male legislators in bringing money back to their districts, in sponsoring and co-sponsoring bills. They're doing more. And there's actually new work by Sarah Fulton suggesting that women are also doing more constituency service, more casework. And so now before you take that and you know draw conclusions, the, the explanation appears to be that in the past, it has been more difficult for women to have the same success in getting elected to office. And so to get the same vote share, to get the same support from voters, uh, women on average had to be a bit better. And so when you look at the pool of people who are elected, the women on average are, you know, outperforming the men. Um, but in addition to that, there are, there are, there's a lot of research suggesting that uh, that female legislators are more collaborative, um, perhaps more bipartisan, that they prioritize different issues. Um, issue, you know, they're pushing policies uh, supportive of women and families, social welfare, civil rights, health, education. Um, and there are some clear differences there in terms of the policies they push. Um, we certainly saw Hillary Clinton champion um, early childhood education, uh, child care for working parents in her Uh, presidential campaign in 2016. Can we expect to see some of those issues staying at the top of the policy priority list in the 2020 presidential campaign? Oh, I think so. I think totally. Um, You know, women's issues have been sort of relegated as the second tier of issues because, 
you know, a woman is the one who bears children, a woman is the one who's primarily responsible in many cases. However, um, you know, in an environment where women are at the table and insisting that these are, these are women's issues, yes, but these are children's issues, and children are not male, you know, children are male and female, and this should be an issue for all of us. And so I think what you're seeing, for example, even in California, you have a male governor who's pushing parental leave, six-month parental leave policies. He's pushing universal preschool. I mean, those, and that's awesome. And I think largely because millennial men and, and younger men who are coming up understand the importance of making sure that policy is inclusive and helps the family move forward. So those are, those historically have been women's issues. Hopefully they are women, they, they should be women and men's issues. Um, but I do think that just on the process side, women are, just anecdotally, again, I have found <laughs> that women are really quite collaborative. So when I had the hardest pieces of legislation to push through, I had a, um, a Republican House and a Republican Senate, and so I needed to work in a bipartisan way. So whenever I had something that was really tough, there was a Democratic woman in the House and a Republican woman in the Senate that I would ask to work together on it. And those two would do all of the cons consultative work that's, that was needed for the constituency groups to make this happen, et cetera. They were by far and away the most effective legislators. Patty Burke, Colts, uh, um, uh, Representative Warren, they were the ones who got the hardest stuff through because they could, and they were not seen as threatening for whatever reason. That's really interesting. You mentioned, Jennifer, uh, that there had been a shift after President Trump's 2016 election in the mobilization and activation of women at the grassroots level, women voters. Um, can you speak a little more about that? You know, what, how has that activism landscape change. Oh, it's awesome. I mean, yeah. look at all of these groups that have been born uh, since Donald Trump was elected. I guess that's the silver lining for democracy is that he's really energized a huge amount of participation. And so whether it's swing left or sister district or, you know, indivisible, I mean, there's just a plethora of groups um, a lot of them focused on women. Here in the, in the Bay Area, there's a group called Emerge that really helps women to become elected, and they have spread across the country. And they, like Emily's List, we're seeing this huge uptick in women who were raising their hand to say, I am in. I am interested in running and saving my community in some way, shape, or form. And it wasn't just Congress. You know, this, this happened up and down the ballot. I mean, in Michigan, we had a woman elected as governor, a woman elected as uh, attorney general, a woman elected as secretary of state. We took back two congressional seats that were both women. I mean, it was really uh, an all-female year, which was fantastic, and it wasn't just Mich Michigan as an anecdote. So I think that the president has been an incredible motivator, um, but ultimately, on the ground, it may be the spark that got people to raise their hand, but in real communities across the country, it really was health care. And I think women are a trusted deliverer of the message of the importance of health care. Not that men aren't. Men, aren't, men are as well. But, but I think that it, it, women embody that, whether it's, it's not just reproductive freedom, but that's one of the aspects of health care that I think people are uh, energized about, uh, women are energized about. Um, so I think women took advantage of uh, both Trump in the White House as well as Trump's express desire to kill the Affordable Care Act to say, no, 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 we're going to stop that. This is too important for people on the ground. I mean, I think one, just the turnout in 2018 yeah, historic. just blew me away. I, I give a lecture every year about, you know, and I talk about the seesaw pattern in midterm and presidential election turnout. 
In a typical midterm, it's 40% of eligible voters participating, typically. It was something like 50%. It was close to 50%. Yeah. This is a huge uptick. It looked more it like a presidential, presidential election. but close. Oh, exactly. Right. And so something's, that is really different. I think it's like compared to the midterms in the last 100 years, yeah. this just stands out as a huge event. And, and I think it, what was striking about it was the number, particularly of um, suburban college-educated women, who came out to to flip the house? Mm-hmm. I mean, really, they flipped the house. The, the you know, um, Afri- women of color, African American women in particular, are clearly such a strong base for the Democrats on making that. But when you can add to that by including women who had his, who had perhaps and even 2016 voted for Donald Trump, and who had aligned with the Republicans and who said, "Enough is enough. This is just." too much to bear. I've got to get out and help save my community. That, I think, was a, a real contributor to that. So that's really interesting. Four in ten women still identify with the Republican Party, either by calling themselves Republicans or saying they lean toward the Republican Party. Uh, and yet we see certain issues that seem to mobilize women on both sides, um, you know, regardless of their, of their partisan slant. So do you, do you think that there's an opportunity for women to kind of come together as a voting block, as an issue-focused voting block in 2020 and moving forward and bypass some of the partisan politics? Maybe a little bit, but I wouldn't be too optimistic there. I mean, so most Republican women still wanted to confirm Judge Kavanaugh, right? right. So there's, partisanship is still a huge factor. And the shifts we saw in particularly white women uh, between 2016 and 2018 were significant. But, you know, we should, so something like 53% of white women voted for, pres- for Donald Trump in 2016. Um, it looks like there was a, an increase in the share of of white women voting for Democrats for House this past election, something like 49% uh, of Democrat uh, white women. But, you know, at the same time, that's not, a, it's, it's big because the numbers are big, but partisanship is still going to be a huge, a huge divider there. Um, and I think that we can't talk about women as a block for that reason. They're not a voting, they don't vote as a block. Um, I, I would say um, I, I have a little more optimism than you do only because of the, um, unprecedented nature, I think, of this presidency. He's so sui generis and so causes such reaction. But particularly among uh, independents, obviously that that middle block is so huge and like 59% of the independents voted Democratic or maybe it was 56%, but nonetheless it was a big block and a lot of those women, uh, a lot of those were women, right? Mm -hmm. Suburban women. So um, I do think, I mean, historically, I'd be curious about your uh, position on this, uh, Sarah, the Historically, white women have voted Republican, and white women have seen, have uh, often, white Republican women have uh, aligned themselves behind um, the patriarchy, if Mm -hmm. you will, right? Taken cover by the patriarch. But I am seeing, um, and perhaps it's just anecdotally, and perhaps it's just because I'm in the mix on this, but I'm seeing so much alignment between white women and women of color Mm -hmm. as opposed to white women and white men. Mm -hmm. So there seems to be a a real push about we're all in this together and we've got to we've got to team up uh, to be able to make an impact. I mean I agree there's definitely been a shift a perceptible shift. How far it will go? I'm not quite sure. I'm not sure. Um, It's just a polarization is um, you know at its peak and well we don't know uh, but it's 
it's difficult to say how much unification you can get under the women umbrella uh, with that, with the degree of polarization uh, and partisanship we have now. But we'll see. We will see. So let's talk a little bit about the media. In the 2016 presidential election, there was certainly a lot of talk about uh, Hillary Clinton being covered differently by the media than Donald Trump and uh, even Bernie Sanders on the left. Uh, And now, moving into the 2020 presidential election, which is already right around the corner, uh, we can expect to have probably four, at least, uh, female Democratic uh, contenders for that race. Should we expect that media coverage will be similar of of those candidates as it was of uh, Hillary Clinton? Do you think journalists have learned? Right. I mean, the the minute Elizabeth Warren uh, announced that she had formed an exploratory committee and she was getting in, you saw a headline from Politico saying, is she facing the likability factor that Hillary Clinton faced, right, which is what you're alluding to. Um, I think the media has a role to play in checking their biases at the door. There's clearly about that. I think women who are running know this. It is clear that women, uh, that voters expect women to be more likable, whether that's fair or not. Obviously, it's not fair. We never ask that about the very unlikable president of the United States. But anyway, we, we don't expect the same thing of men. But what I say to women who are in it, look, at, you are going to face biases. It just is part of the deal. So as Ann Richards said when she was governor of Texas, that, and it's alluding to the whole thing you were saying about women in state legislatures, the old saw that women have to do, you know, women can do everything that men can do. Remember uh, Ginger Rogers did everything that Fred Astaire did. She just did it backwards in high heels. Women have to be twice as good to be considered half as good, and that is, that's just it. But here's what I say to them <laughs> is that that's a fact, but don't highlight the fact that you think you are a victim because people do not want to elect a victim. They want to elect a warrior. And the only way we are going to eliminate those biases is to get warriors in office, at the table, on, in those positions so that those biases go away over time. We're not going to fix it in one election. These women will have that bias, but they cannot succumb to it. I mean, I think that the the thing that hasn't and will not change is the need the, the need to go to cover what is going to get clicks and it's going to get readers is, mm. and that is so a constant. At the same time, I think that there's greater awareness of the potential for differential treatment than perhaps there was um, a few years back. And frankly, I think in terms of the research, it's really difficult to study just because a lot of it's so nuanced and subtle. Um, if you're trying to create a measure of bias, right, it's difficult um, because a lot of it's hard to track. Um, and comparing Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump in 2016, okay, it's difficult to attribute anything that happened to gender bias because, look, they're two people. They're really unusual. Um, you know, to say when people said her voice is shrill, okay, that's probably a gender thing, right? But it's it's a, it's a difficult thing to study. Um, mm. Is it you know it's the sort of thing where there are studies suggesting there's no bias in the volume of coverage and the content of coverage, right? If you look at men and women congressional candidates, at the same time you think eh, maybe we're just not measuring this. And right? you know what? You know? We're, there's a great um, d- the democratization of political discourse through Twitter allows for. Um, entities to be checked by the masses. Mm -hmm. And there's so many young people who are on there whose antenna are up and are listening for this and are checking the media all the time. Mm -hmm. And I just have to say one thing about this shrill voice thing, because you'll hear this again. You You even hear strains of it right now in talking about Elizabeth Warren when she went to Iowa, et cetera. 
this is the hardest thing for women in office because we don't have <laughs> these deep voices. And so, you know, our natural voice is going to be higher. And if you are, you know, making a forceful point, you, you know, the speech coaches will train all of these women candidates to try to lower your voice rather than allow it to get up to a higher register because people are just not there yet. I would be in big trouble I would, in that situation. You'd have to. <laughs> we all would. We're all, I mean, I, I certainly had to check myself a lot on that. One thing that's really interesting to me is that we have some new members of the uh, U.S. House who are particularly younger yeah. women who have been elected, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who seem to be throwing some of those Love rules it. out the door yeah. and saying, I'm going to be my authentic self, yeah, right. and if you don't like it, you know, so be it. But people on the left, at least, seem to like it. Mm-hmm. Um, so so is, there, is there some sort of intersection between age and gender that is playing out here? It seems like it. I, I think there totally is, and I love these younger women who are saying, you know, basically, you know, screw you, <laughs> to, to the you know, to the political pundits and all of the folks who have historically brought women along. And I think those who are, like, in the job of training women, like the Emerges and the Emily's List, they're understanding that people are craving that authenticity. That doesn't mean that you, um, you know, that you can throw everything out because there's certain sort of bounds that you've got to operate in. But I love the fact that AOC, as she's called, uh, you know, uses social media in a suit, in a savvier way than almost anybody out there in responding and is fearless about it. So that fearlessness, I think, is a really important thing that millennials have given as a gift to the political universe. So 2018 has been labeled by political pundits as the year of the woman. And of course, it's not the first time that this label has been put on a year. I think 1992 was the last time that this label was applied. And that was following the Anita Hill hearings uh, and a handful of senators getting uh, elected in, in the wake of those hearings. What are some of the parallels that you see between the early 90s and now? And how do you think things have evolved if at all, between then and now. Let's start with Sarah. Sure. Um, well, I mean, there are the obvious parallels. Uh, you know, Supreme Court nominee accused of sexual harassment, sexual assault, um, and the backlash to that. Um, you know, at, at the same time, there was uh, in '92 there was also there were a lot of um, retirements, congressional retirements, and so this desire for outsiders. Um, and frankly, because women are a minority, they are viewed as outsiders. Yeah, so. Totally agree. Um, I think that that was part of it. Um, things that are different, though, well, first of all, you ended up in 92 with a Democratic president and a Democratic Congress, and that's definitely not where we are now. And polarization is the sort of the elephant in the room, that the, uh, the divide between the political parties is just nowhere near what it was in 92, and I think that that has a major impact. And also, Donald Trump is a phenomenon uh, that has no parallel in 1992. I, I mean, we're just in a completely different world uh, with our current president. Um, yeah, so the, the real question is, can we expect this enthusiasm and this surge in female candidacies to, um, uh, to continue? You know, and after 92, we did not. Uh, it, was a bl- it, it wasn't a blip because it, it, it 
there was a steady increase over time in the share of women running and elected. Um, and one nice difference between today and 92 is that it's, I think it's seen as more legitimate for women to hold office. There are just a lot more women um, who are getting elected and running. Um, but it, you know, it re- remains to be seen what's going to happen. Is, is the 2018 surge going to continue into 2020, 2022? I, I don't know. It's too soon to tell. I don't know. You seem to yeah, think Yeah, I mean, I, I think about it. So in 1992, I think there were five women who were elected in the Senate, and that was the year of the woman. Five right. out of 100. Right. Woo-hoo! Mm-hmm. And, then, and then I think uh, 20 years later, in 2012, there were 20 women elected in the Senate, and that was seen as a huge breakthrough. And so, you know, here we are in 2019 and we have 25 women and, you know, we're still not at 50. So we've still got a long way to go. So I think this year of the woman thing, um, you know, I think the difference really right now is this notion of young women who do not feel bound by previous mores in terms of how you operate politically. I think that the young, these millennial women, and younger, the Gen Z's, I think they're called the Mill Z's, the combination of millennial and Gen Z, they are not having any of it. They're not going back. They are not having any of that. So this push to authenticity and to allowing people, I mean, I think a lot of reality TV has given, has opened up the door of allowing people just to be who they are and to, to capitalize on, the, on struggles. So there's a lot of women who were, who were firsts, who were elected as first you know, Muslim American woman, first Native American women, and they were unabashed about sharing the challenges that happened well and how they, over, I mean, the story about overcoming is the most important piece of that, right? And how they champion so that people see, oh, if you overcame that, I can overcome my struggles too. And being open and free, that, free to share, I think that is a huge difference. And that women are by nature, by, not by nature, by, um, uh, by circumstance, outsiders. I think mm-hmm. that point about them being outsiders is absolutely fundamental. Why not try something else because what we've got ain't working. Right. And I think also just the success of women this, uh, this particular midterm you have now a bunch of role models, yeah, a bunch, a bunch yeah. of people that um, other women can look to and say, "Oh, maybe I, maybe I could do that." Like maybe. So, it, does it have? I think it does have the potential to have a longer-term impact on the political ambition gap between yeah, men and totally women. Totally agree. Totally agree. So, do you expect to see the same number of women running for office more. in twenty twenty? More women, <laughs> more. and the same or more voter turnout among women? Yeah, I totally think. I mean, you know, again, partly propelled by um, opposition to the president, but I do think that you are going to see a woman on the ticket. I firmly believe. I don't know if she'll be in one number one or number two. You know, president or vice president, but I think we will have a woman on the ticket. And that's going to be exciting. Uh, and I think you're going to see more women who are running for president, who are legitimate, uh, serious contenders. And, um, you know, that, that kind of brawling is really healthy from a democracy point of view. Sarah, any predictions? Um, I would love to be give, you know, shown information that would lead me to be optimistic. I want to be encouraged. And I just look at the... There, we don't know what will happen in 2020. 
and how long President Trump will be around to be this motivating force and how permanent the impacts are on the Republican Party, right? So um, if not Donald Trump, there could be another uh, Trump-like figure. And if, so if that, if people are energized to participate when their enemies are in office, right? So when, yeah, totally for true. better or for worse, anger um, is a very strong a motivator. motivator. So... The question is, will that persist, um, that motivation, to, in, 2020? In, in 2020 and beyond? Don't right? you think it will? Yes, absolutely. Okay, but so I'm just saying going beyond, forward. Beyond, I see. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah. the question being, what, will we see the enthusiasm and turnout dip at some point in the future? Or is this right. an, a lasting change? Not in change? 2020, but it, who knows yeah. into the future. One thing that was interesting that I believe uh, you mentioned, Governor Granholm, was uh, the, the suite of resistance organizations yeah. that have sprung up after yeah. 2016. And I think you know, of the four or five that you listed, all of them have at least a female co-founder. Yep, or, totally. Or, or women, are being led 100% so by them, women. Yes. Yeah, so... It seems like that could play a role in maintaining enthusiasm and turnout in the years ahead. A new ecosystem of grassroots organizations yes. championed by women. Yes. Um, yeah. So can you speak to that? No, no. I think you're, I mean, you put your finger on it. I think women, um, not just in front of, um, you know, the, not just raising their hand to say I'm running, but raising their hand to say I am going to create an ecosystem that ensures greater representation for women across the board. And so, so many of these, I mean, it's great. They've got, they do have co-founders, many of them. Some of them are just two women who founded it and said uh, enough is enough. But the bottom line is the fact that women are at the, at the ground level building organization, building capacity in addition to running for office and in addition to voting. Those three pieces of democracy are now you're seeing uh, much greater representation, and I think that will bear fruit in the future. I think we should wrap it up on that optimistic note. Thank you so much for <laughs> speaking bet. with us. You bet. Thank, Thank you, Charlotte. Yeah. Thank you both.